Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksam Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's talk, given by meditation instructor Marcus Casey, continues our series based on the book Interconnected, Embracing Life in Our Global Society by His Holiness the 17th Jawan Karmapa. His Holiness refers to the 21st century as the century of sharing. Our world is interconnected in a way never before seen in human history. As cultures and people interact, we need a deep inner sense of what makes all people equal. Listen as His Holiness teaches us to cherish diversity and reject the notion that difference is deficiency. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming today. My name is Marcus Casey, and uh, Lama Kathy has asked meditation instructors to give talks when she's out of town. And uh, no worries, though. It's uh, we we go through book studies, and and uh, today we're going to be studying the words of His Holiness the Seventeenth Karmapa. So. Uh, these are not my thoughts, so you're not missing out on anything. Um, the, uh, the book we're going through right now is called Interconnected by His Holiness the 17th Karmapa. And interconnected is the word he prefers to use. He, f- he feels that it's more a more palatable uh, translation than interdependence, which can have some negative connotations for some people. Uh, specifically today, our chapter is called Equality and Diversity. And I really sat down to prepare this talk uh, last weekend, uh, shortly after the, the uh, two shootings in El Paso and Dayton. And the timing of this talk and the Karmapa's words could absolutely not be more timely. Um, This is a very contemporary issue, and His Holiness Karmapa discusses it from a Buddhist perspective, but in a completely contemporary way as well. So we traditionally like to begin talks by saying the four-line refuge prayer. Uh, This is a, a prayer in Tibetan, so... Some of you know it, some of you don't. If you know it, you can join in. If you don't know it, just feel free to listen and make the aspiration that you will awaken and help others to awaken. Uh, When we chant this, we are repeating our commitment to the three jewels. The three jewels are the Buddha, or that which we aspire to, uh, the Dharma, which is the path, and the Sangha, or the guides and helpers along the path. We'll chant the refuge prayer three times. Oh, Sanje Chudang Soki Chonam La Jang Chu Bardu Dagni Kapsu Chi Dagi Jin Sogi Pe Sunangi Drola Penchir Sanje Drupar Sanje Chidang Toki Chognamla 
Jangchu Bardu Dagni Gapsu Chi Dagi Jin Soki Pesunamgi Drola Penchir Sangje Drupar Sangje Chidang Soki Chonamla Jangchu Bardu Dagni Kapsu Chi Dagi Jin Soki Pesunamgi Drola Penchir Sangje Drupar So as I was reading through this chapter and this whole book, as a matter of fact, um, I'm really struck by how involved His Holiness Karmapa is in the current issues of the day. Um, we've also done a recent series on uh, Karmapas throughout history, and that they were absolutely no different. They were very involved with uh uh, teaching the the Mongol rulers and the the uh, Chinese emperors and things like that. They and and the seventeenth Karmapa is absolutely no different. He is not disconnected from the grit of current events, and uh, it's very very uh, nice to see that he's speaking to us. He's. He he knows what's going on in the world. Um, and he addresses all of these pressing social issues uh, from a mind full of compassion and a deep understanding of the human mind and the interconnected world that we live in. So as I give a talk on equality and diversity, um, I'm well aware that there are probably those in this room who could speak more from experience about problems of inequality and, uh, and intolerance that we experience. Um, but please look through me. These are His Holiness Karmapa's words. And, uh, and this, is, this is his message, and he also has a lot of experience to bring to bear to it. So he starts off and he says that human beings have always been confronted by diversity. Um, even when human beings lived in very small communities um, spread out over vast continents, uh, they still experienced difference. I mean, they're still male and female and tall and short and, and abled and disabled and uh, things like that. Those have always been with us. Um, so there has always been the need to confront diversity, no matter the size of the community or the time uh, that we've uh, that we're talking about. But now today, he says, we have a global interconnected society, many different cultures, religions, and skin tones, and there has been an increased awareness of the spectrum of sexual orientation and gender. We are more aware of the differences of cognition, mental health, and disability. And he says, now more than ever, it is critical to, uh, to understand the role of equality and diversity in our 
world. He says it's not in spite of the growing awareness of our diversity, but because of the growing awareness of our of diversity, that the notion of full equality is being championed by advocates for justice in many arenas, especially in the areas that formerly used to divide society. Karmapa says the current notion of equality includes others who in the recent past and at times still today uh, have been labeled as unequal, impaired, or even unnatural on account of their sexual orientation or gender identity or other physical or mental conditions. His Holiness Karmapa says that we need to nurture this expanding notion of equality. He says we need to be clear on the actual foundation of our equality. We need a clear understanding of what makes us equal so that when we encounter diversity, we do not mistake these differences as an indication of inequality. And that, I think, is, is really fundamental, and he touches on this a lot. The idea that when we see difference, when we see diversity, we are not seeing what fundamentally <coughs> makes us equal. We are seeing, uh, he says in Tibet, uh, they compare this to a tree. And what makes us equal is the trunk, the root of the tree. We are all equal in that. But we all have different branches. And we're all different in many, many different sorts of ways. And he says, um, I'm struck by the fact that in this chapter, I did not see the word tolerance anywhere. He says we need to cherish that diversity. We need to cherish those differences. He says that by virtue of having a mind and awareness, all sentient beings are equal in terms of our capacity to experience pain and joy and in our pervasive longing to avoid suffering and to be happy. Um, When you drive on 270 tomorrow morning, and you're stuck in traffic, you're stuck in traffic because everyone else out there is doing the same thing you are. They're looking for happiness, right? They're looking to avoid suffering. They're doing that by going to work. They're doing that by providing for their family. This is not a negative or a positive, but that's what we're all doing. When you lift a rock and you see uh, the bugs scurry away, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to avoid suffering. And um, he says that uh, desire for happiness and to avoid suffering and our mind and awareness is what makes us all equal. We all have that in common. And that is the trunk of the tree. Going a little further than just all sentient beings... Um, He says that human beings are equal in our capacity to cultivate the inner conditions on which our happiness depends. In other words, uh, we're more able than, say, the animal kingdom uh, or or the single-cell microbes or whatever to actually uh, produce the causes and conditions that relieve our suffering and increase our happiness. As well as 
we have the capacity to live as individuals in a society, and we have the capacity for empathy, love, and courageous compassion within that society. He says we're also equal in all depending on the earth to sustain us. We might live in different places and have different local conditions, but we all share the same planet. We all breathe its air. We all affect one another. He says the effect of what we do to the planet affects someone else in another part of the world. Market demands for specific goods in one part of the world have led to excessive carbon emissions in another part of the world. And uh, you think about the big manufacturing centers in China and the carbon emissions that they create. And yet those goods that are made there are sold here. And he says the air may be clean and healthy in the area where the goods are purchased, but dirty and dangerous in the areas where the goods are made. We live in a very interconnected society. So even though we are all equal, clearly equality is not sameness. We all live in different circumstances and contexts. As a matter of fact, he says interdependence or interconnectedness says that we cannot be identical because if we were all identical, we would all be occupying the same spot in the web of interdependence. And we actually are all in a different spot in that web. Um, we all have different have a different place in the chain of causes and conditions that connects us all. But wherever, from whatever diverse place we occupy in our interdependent world, we all deserve equal access to our shared resources. As equals within the web of interdependence, we manifest different cultural assumptions and different religious views or philosophies of life, and that greatly enhances the richness of human culture that we can all learn from and benefit from. So he says that um, that's all well and good to understand this intellectually, and I'm guessing that nothing he has said so far um, has caused any of us to disagree on an intellectual level. Um, maybe you do, I don't know, and we'll have time for, for comments later. But, but generally speaking, the idea of equality and diversity, I think, in this room is probably well accepted. But even though we've accepted it intellectually, we don't actually feel equal and we don't always act like we are equal. He says there remains both a great deal of social inequality and a great deal of perceived personal inequality. He talks about globalism and consumerism and how that encourages everyone to aspire to the same ideal of material prosperity. It basically obscures the real basis of equality, which is internal. We are manipulated 
into chasing some ideal of external material equality that is based on material goods. And this is used against us as a marketing tool. So if you think about marketing that you see, ads, online, TV, wherever, so many of them are basically showing you someone using a good or service for the purpose of creating within you a sense of lack. Suddenly there's a sense of inequality. That person has something that I don't have, that I, that I want. And, I mean, it's just on a hyper level at this point. Um, we, most of us carry small computers in our pockets. And after two years, the marketing is telling us it's old and needs to be replaced, right? Um, that it, it's, it's on such a, such a, a, a fast pace at, that, at right now. Um, and what they're doing is they're creating a sense of inequality, a sense of being behind, a sense on not having what everyone else has. So you try to equalize that, and you go out and purchase goods and services. And he says this fuels the entire global economy. The entire global economy rests on the idea that we are inadequate and incomplete as we are and therefore need to acquire things to make up for that fact. We begin to th feel that being equal means adopting a certain lifestyle, a lifestyle that is largely constructed by corporations and promoted all over the world through social media. That sentence is straight out of the book. Um, Karmapa is rather plugged in to what's going on in the world. Um... He says that setting material equality as the measure of our equality guarantees that we will fall short of the mark. There will always be goods out there to be purchased, and we will always have more or less than those around us. He says having this standard for equality leaves us impoverished. It constitutes a serious obstacle to establish a reliable basis for social equality. It, for, it feeds a self-perpetuating cycle of consumption, making us feel that we should be equal, but we have failed. He says this is because we don't carry deep within us and we have not internalized a valid definition of equality. We might not agree intellectually that having material wealth makes us better than someone who lacks it, but our culture has fed us that from day one, and it's hard not to buy into that mindset uh, deep down, deep in our minds. So this is where he said, he said earlier there's a lot of real social inequality in this world, but there's also a lot of perceived personal inequality. And this is, this is what they're doing. They're pulling on those strings of perceived personal inequality. He says, if human beings are ranked in our society by their level of wealth and their participation in this scramble to consume, 
how much more entire communities? He says any group or demographic group, any, any community or demographic group that has not reached the forefront of this consumer activity is dubbed backward. Developing world, third world, etc. And therefore, one whose voice can be ignored in conversations about global issues. They are still seen as in need of development. And this is what we call progress. Uh, he talks about communities in the Amazon rainforest that um, had never been contacted. And then, and then when we... Uh, when we do find out about them, when we discover them, then we're, we're very curious about it. Uh, we, we look at the way they've preserved their sustainable way of life, and uh, we marvel at their exotic customs. And at the same time, we consider them backward or primitive because they live with no modern conveniences. Now, I told you Karmapa spoke about some of this um, from experience. So His Holiness Karmapa spent the first several years of his life um, in a nomadic community on the high Tibetan plateau. And he says this is very similar. He said they did have contact with other cultures, uh, but they also lived without electricity or appliances or anything made of plastic. Uh, he said his community was similarly looked down on and seen as backward and in need of development. He says we need to dif differentiate carefully between wise development and mere material development. If we understand development to include such goals as human rights, environmental conservation, and education, that's a wise development. But far too often, people still believe they are witnessing development when they see a backward community finding new opportunities to do menial jobs for low pay so they can buy more consumer goods that we treat as markers of success and advancement. But human beings can develop in many ways and not all involve gaining more material goods. Development should bring better access to conditions for happiness and well-being. More value should be placed on developing inner conditions for growth as human beings. And as we do so, we should ensure that everyone has equal access to beneficial advancements and resources. We have to consider what that access costs, not only financially, but also in terms of the communi community's cultural identity and therefore of human diversity as a whole. He said, now that we've encountered these Amazonian communities, should we leave them alone to pursue their own way of life? Or should they receive educational and other resources comparable to what the rest of the world has access to? He says, there's no easy answer. If we give them a modern education, they'll probably begin to lose that cultural knowledge that has preserved their way of life for centuries. But if women are dying in childbirth or suffering from diseases that we have the cure to, shouldn't we offer them access to medical treatment and education about the diseases? He says he wants to make clear he's not arguing against change that can actually improve health and well-being. He says like everyone else, 
he wants his nomadic family to have access to health care when they are sick. But he's pointing out the complex issue. He's lived on both sides of this issue. He also says that, um, that we need to remember that these, these communities have a lot to offer. The Amazonian communities have a deep understanding of the interconnection of, of the biodiversity that they live in, in the rainforest that they live in. Something we can learn from. He says, similarly, his family living on the high Tibetan plateaus uh, had a deep connection to the earth and a commitment to protect uh, the area they lived in. And he says, and that's an extremely important area because the rivers of uh, Asia flow from that area. He says that it has so much freshwater ice in the high Tibetan plateau that it's considered by many scientists to be a third pole. Um, and it's a, you know, a largely unexplored area by many people, but the nomads who live there know it intimately. So he says there's no doubt that we're all equals on a fundamental human level. But we need to think further about how we are managing our obvious differences. How can we establish social equality without erasing diversity? How can we embrace our differences with mutual respect and harmony? He says that we have a great deal of difficulty distinguishing between being equal and being the same. When we reduce the ideal of equality to an ideal of sameness, great harm results at every level of reality. Especially, he says, when the ideal that we are encouraged to aspire to is determined by the self-interests of a few. He talks about the beauty industry, and specifically, he mentions the beauty industry in South Korea um, because he says he's had friends that have told him about this. Now, uh, it's been a long time, but a long time ago I lived in South Korea, and I'm actually aware of what he's talking about. Um, I had friends that uh, were graduating from college and just about to head out into the work world, and so it was kind of a given that they needed to go get facial plastic surgery. Um, because how would they be able to get a job if they didn't match enough to the uh, standards of beauty um, that were uh, set forth? Karmapa says that he's told that in Korea, uh, you know, when they crown a, a, a Miss South Korea, so many people go out and get surgery to look just like that particular lady, that then there are 10 or 12 women who are hard to tell apart because they've surgically made themselves all look alike. Um, and eating disorders are at an epidemic level, as you can imagine. Karmapa um, says that the issue is systemic and not unique to South Korea. 
These women are conditioned by society to think that they have to look a certain way. People who do the hiring and make editorial decisions for magazines reinforce all of that. Uh, in a way, we all end up culpable in a society that enforces certain uh, certain beauty constraints. And he says, there's a billion-dollar industry that both stimulates and profits from our longing to look like someone else. And that's deeply troubling and a sign that we have confused difference with deficiency. When we confuse difference with deficiency, equality gets translated into uniformity and sameness. But our idea of equality must go deeper. Equality is based on who we are. We are equal in our shared human condition and in the latent nobility of heart that lies within each of us. When we make that the standard of our equality and our value, we already all measure up. We can find the basis for living as equals without needing to reduce equality to conformity. He says that earlier, well, earlier in this book and in, in previous books, uh, we talked about how a view of interdependence also teaches us to value biodiversity in the natural environment. But the same is true for human diversity. Interdependence can lead us to appreciate the benefits and beauty of our differences. We are all born into different contexts. We have different interests, habits, and inclinations. We have different individual interactions and experiences, different knowledge, different cultures. He says this human diversity contributes to the strength and health of our societies, just as plant diversity contributes to the strength and health of a forest. But he says the one area where we seem to have the most difficulty in appreciating diversity, can anyone take a guess what it is? possibly not in this room. Religion. Um, he says, but religious diversity is inevitable. We studied the fifth Karmapa, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, the, new, the, the new emperor, the Ming dynasty in, in China, wanted to, he didn't like that there was so much diversity in, in Buddhism around the empire. And he wanted to literally go convert everyone using military might to the Karmakaju lineage. And the Karmapa had to say, no, no, no. We benefit from this diversity. This diversity helps serve everyone. Don't do that. So His Holiness the 17th Karmapa hasn't lost that, right? Same, same idea. Um, he says that all these differences we have in, the, in, in our inclinations and our habits and our cultural, our historic context, our geography has played a part in the rise of our religious institutions, doctrines, and practices. He says it's necessary and positive for human society. Uh, there's no best religion. If that religion does not meet your needs, 
does not fit your inclinations and uh, what you need, it is, it does you no good. So how can it be called best? The diversity of religion is necessary because of the diversity of humanity. So the idea that our religion is best is mistaken. Uh, sorry, the idea that our religious religion is best and others are mistaken or inferior uh, is is just not useful at all. And uh, it's it's good to hear religious leaders saying that. He says that religions are already equal in the most important sense if they address us as human beings, recognize our common wish to be free of suffering, and find lasting happiness. They are equal. And to the extent that they work uh, for people to achieve these aims, um, then, then they are a positive in this world. So when it comes to religion, again, we value both their equality and their differences in diversity, equality and diversity simultaneously. He says uh, that the 21st century is a century of sharing. We are in a communications age in which we have constant exchanges and access to images, information, and ideas from all over the world. It is unprecedented. And it gives us freedom to interact across cultural and religious borders. Whenever there is interaction between two people, both parties are impacted and changed in some way or another, subtle or obvious. World history records a remarkable diversity of cultural views, visions, and encounters between them have led to lots of different results. It sometimes uh, different cultures met and they intermingle. At other times, one culture uh, seeks to dominate another. Uh, at other times, they, they uh, seek to actively preserve and defend their own way of life, even within the new context. But in a world as wired as our, ours is, it's nearly impossible to escape contact with the rest of the world. Today, our diversity is something to be shared and exchanged with others freely. And because we are so wired and so connected, it is literally critical that we wake up to this need to learn from others and cherish our differences. Each culture and religion, he says, is no longer the property of any single community. But to all who live on this planet, who can learn from these different religions and cultures. Although he does warn us that uh, treating our interactions with religious traditions and cultural practices, uh, we can actually bring to that our habits formed from the globalization of consumer culture. And basically what he's talking about is that we can end up seeing 
other religions, other cultures, as something we can consume. Um, and that, um, that really is, is especially uh, pronounced when we're talking about cultures that have not, were not plugged into the global society until much more recently. Uh, those who were disconnected, and I'm sure the Tibetans fall into that category, but indigenous peoples uh, all over the globe, etc. He says, um, sometimes we feel entitled to do with them what we wish when we encounter them. And that's probably, again, from that arrogance of seeing backward cultures as uh, as lesser. And I use backward in quotation marks. Um, he says, we may think we are showing appreciation when we do so, but religious traditions and cultural practices are not another set of products to be acquired and consumed. That's a kind of spiritual materialism or cultural appropriation. It is not genuine human sharing. So I got to thinking about this because a few years ago I actually read an article written by a member of the Tibetan diaspora who lived in the West, and she was comparing um, Tibetan uh, Buddhist rituals that she had seen in uh, the West to what she grew up with in Tibet. And she seemed actually quite put out by the cultural appropriation. And so it's, it's something I've given a good deal of thought to over the years. And I think um, what makes me feel okay is we did not just view these from the outside. We didn't get online and, and try to mimic what someone else was doing. Um, we were connected to and founded by the Karmapas and those sent by the Karmapa to, to develop centers like this. We were given these practices um, by, from the lineage that we are part of. Um, I do think um, that sometimes there is a tendency to come to these beliefs and, and you know, we get excited, we found something that really speaks to us, and there's an enthusiasm. All good. Sometimes that enthusiasm, uh, we, we want to start adopting certain cultural um, habits and customs from Tibet that really are just that, customs of Tibet, and we don't, we don't need that to, uh, to benefit from the religious teaching. So I'll leave that on everyone's personal level to decide where, where that is, uh, but just to be aware. Um, he says, Karmapa says, we may have to move out from behind our computers and actually connect with the people who hold the wisdom of the traditions that we interact with. And that's what makes me feel like, okay, we do that, right? 
right? We absolutely have learned this from the masters. Um, Karmapa says that at a minimum, cultural sharing requires that we value others' worldviews. If we feel like we can't sincerely value a culture or religion for itself, then we at least need to be able to and willing to recognize its purpose and reason for being. All too often, we don't live up to this. Um, we respond to difference in a way that's very far from the vision of sharing, and we react out of ignorance. We heap our own projections onto our view of others. We take isolated details and flesh them out into full-blown fictions, or we uncritically adopt a narrative from the media or society. And if we aren't humble enough to recognize our ignorance about others, then we come to believe whatever we're told about others. And it takes wisdom to know how little we actually know. When you see a viral video about someone, how much do you know about that person? He says you might see that and you're seeing one small snippet of their lives and maybe they're losing it in a, in a restaurant. But he says, on balance, they may be a kinder and gentler person than you are. <laughs> if you could see their whole life, you may discover uh, the circumstances that surround that. So we need to recognize our ignorance of the full context. He said, people who, uh, and, and we can all relate to this, people who create beautiful art or entertain us in some way, may have ethical behaviors that we find repugnant. Um, ignorance denies our role in producing the ideas that we have about others. We put our opinions and our judgments of others completely on them when really it is an interaction. It has to do with the interaction between them, them and us. He says, ignorance's field of vision is partial. He talks about how it becomes especially dangerous when we take that judgment and that critique of a person and apply it to an entire group, community, or country religion, etc. He mentions the rise of, of Islamophobia in this country after 9-11 and after other terrorist attacks around the U.S. and Europe. He says that, um, that the actions of a handful of people lead us to labeling millions of people who, in actuality, wish for happiness just like we do. He says... Uh, he says, when we, when we uh, make judgments about other groups, what we often do is we set one group as the standard bearer, an elite, not necessarily the rich and powerful elite that you often hear about, but there's a standard bearer, there's a default, and everyone else is trying to measure up in a sameness to that default. Um, I, I, one example, of course, we recently saw the Women's World Cup. 
but nobody talked two years ago about the Men's World Cup. It was the World Cup. The Men's World Cup, the men, especially in sports, but in many other arenas, were the default, and uh, the Women's World Cup needed a qualifier. Um, So that, you know, we can all name many examples of that in our society. But he says, when we analyze this confusion where we take our own projections and appearances to be reality, we trace the problem back to the problem of selfishness. We cling to these judgments simply because they are our own. And it's a form of arrogance. We feel that what appears to us must be reality, and what appears to others, if it is different, must be mistaken. Then he talks about living in hierarchies. You know, I'm, I'm running a little short on time, so I'll go a little bit fast. But he says hierarchies are inevitable. Um, we're going to live in social hierarchies. The problem is when we believe that different spots on the hierarchy represent different or, or, or represent a, a higher or lower. He says all spots on a hierarchy are equal. He says the rich and the famous depend on everyone else, or the, the famous and the powerful, I think he says, uh, to, for their power and fame. We make them famous just like they depend on, and, and they depend on us for their fame. Um, he says, you know, we're all in multiple hierarchies at any given time. So we're in a specific hier- we're in a specific spot in a hierarchy at work, a different one in our social interactions, a different one in our families, etc., etc., etc. And we have to remember the fundamental equality of everyone on that hierarchy just because they're playing different roles does not mean that they are not equal at a fundamental level. He says what you're seeing there is is diversity, not inequality. But he says that um, even though we're naturally equal, there remains a great deal of inequality in the world. And these inequalities are entirely man-made. We tend to primarily blame those who are running the government or the CEOs, but he says we're, we're also responsible for uh, putting them there. Um, they're usually just there because of the people below them. If we buy their products, if we vote a certain way, then we are giving them that power. So he says we all have a responsibility and a part to play in this interdependent world to ensure that we all have access to what we need to alleviate suffering. He says that in hierarchies, when someone who is on top of the hierarchy perceives that that hierarchy is no longer needed because of societal changes or perceives a readjustment of that hierarchy, they they often cling to... um, their spot in the hierarchy. And 
this causes a lot of problems. Um, he says that when some men hear the term women's rights, they feel threatened as though it were a competition for rights. The examples of this go on and on. Um, there's a quote that I read about three years ago. And um, it's a very useful quote for understanding this dynamic and what you see a lot in the news today. Um, the quote is, when you are used to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And so what you see is a lot of people losing their perceived place on the hierarchy. And because they believed that that hierarchy was a hierarchy of who was better than whom, a hierarchy of power meant that you, if you were the powerful one, that um, you, you uh, were better than others. And the idea that we want to reinforce the equality or that that particular hierarchy has become uh, stale and unnecessary causes people to, causes a backlash sometimes where people think they are being oppressed uh, by, by others who are just trying to assert equality. Karmapa says interdependence offers a way to see instead the great value and wisdom of others and recognize that equality does not require uniformity. In order for equality to be of value, we need to learn new habits of connecting from the heart across differences. Our basic capacity for empathy is a powerful resource we can harness to connect on that deeper level. So here, around here, we do the practice uh, weekly, and some people do it daily, of chin raising, the practice of compassion. And the purpose of that practice, one of the purposes of that practice, is to continually develop and nurture that empathy within us. And he says that is really what's needed. A deeply felt understanding of interdependence and nurturing the empathy that that brings about is uh, critical in this current time, in this current global society. So I hope that's been helpful. We have some time for questions. And if anyone would like to go up to the, question, the, the microphone over here, uh, I'd be happy to take your question or comment. I'm sure many of us thought of uh, things from the news, current events, all that kind of thing, um, current political climate that can really be diagnosed and expressed in terms of um, confusing equality and uh, conf confusing diversity with deficiency.
I guess is the best way of saying it, and not recognizing the fundamental equality of all beings. So feel free to come up and... Tim, how are you? Morning. Feeling good. good. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. Sure. Uh, Early on when you were talking about um, being similar to a tree or trying to see how we were like trees, Mm -hmm. I was sitting there trying to think, okay, how am I sucking um, nutrients from the soil like a tree? Mm. And I thought, well, I'm one step removed from the tree because I'm eating those things that are rooted Mm. in the ground. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I thought, if one's eating meat, they're yet one step further removed because the animal ate those products that were rooted in the soil, mm-hmm. and now I'm eating the animal. So mm-hmm. um, I think I'll stick with the, uh, the things where I see the roots as I pick them up in the ref- uh, grocery <laughs> store or <laughs> out of the garden. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's uh, we have to make sure we recognize that it is a metaphor, and uh, but well, I, I think of it a little stronger than that. Yep, yeah. and that's fine too. Okay, thank you. That's fine too. <laughs> so um, when I when I think about how he talks about the branches and and what makes us different and what makes us fundamentally the same, I think about uh, our Buddhist I- concept idea of Buddha nature, as we call it, or basically the fundamental goodness, the fundamental purity and clarity of mind that we all have within us, but that is covered up. And I think often people will ask questions that indicate a misunderstanding of enlightenment or realization that that they start to think that if they get enlightened, then those things that make them unique, those branch ideas will no longer be there. But that's not it at all. Uh, that, that still remains. Um, as a matter of fact, our teachers who have this realization uh, have wonderful personalities and um, and uniquenesses that make them very special. But what it does mean, I think, is that they've tapped into that fundamental trunk in, in a way that is so, um, that's so much at the core of their minds that they can no longer be separated from that core understanding and that way of seeing others as equal, um, that they'll, they'll never get away from that. Yes. Hi. Thank- Hello. Sure. Earlier you were talking about um, consumerism. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, in the midst of this almost sickness of, consumerism, how we reconcile this practice, I mean, with like, you know, I work in a business that depends on people Mm -hmm. buying things. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you're talking about it, I feel really deeply conflicted. And so how, I guess I I sort of feel 
um, almost like a fraud or almost uh, disconnected from this process as I hear you talking about that. Not because I feel like, I guess I don't really know why. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see how my day-to-day life can align with some of these spiritual practices, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. I'm feeling no, conflicted no, about. I, I, I hear you completely. And and uh, some months ago, we actually had a chapter from Taisitu Rinpoche's book where he talked a lot about that and and how difficult it is because we are we participate in a system whose purpose is to arouse desire, which we all know from the Four Noble Truths is a path that leads to suffering. And we, we participate in this system oftentimes because we don't have a choice. We don't have a, we need to. We need to uh, live. We need to provide for ourselves and our families. We need health care. We need food. We need shelter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Taisitu Rinpoche talked about this quite a bit, but he fundamentally said, we need people who are awake and aware and practicing compassion in these places too. We need to take the wisdom that we develop here and take it to our place of employment as well. We won't stop the system. You won't change your company from advertising. You won't change your company from uh, trying to um, seek um, after the almighty dollar above all else. But he says, you know, bringing humanity to that situation, bringing a focus that's an actual focus on people's long-term happiness and well-being um, and, and the empathy that gives rise to that, bringing that to the situation is very critical and necessary. And um, we all need to develop that. And as we do that, Society will change around us as well. Um, I've thought a lot about this. And in some ways, I think, what you know, I have a particular place on the hierarchy. And it isn't a particularly powerful place on that hierarchy. And therefore, I can't affect change in a major way. Um... Some people wrestle with these ideas and they end up making career changes. Some people wrestle with these ideas and that's not a possibility. And they end up bringing the wisdom and compassion that they have to that situation. And I can't speak to your specific situation and and what it is. Um, But I know there is an ongoing tension for those of us who... who, uh, who practice these these practices and develop our compassion and think hard about consumerism, think hard about those who are hurt the most by consumerism, think hard about 
how much it's it's drawn us in, how much it's led to suffering and feelings of inadequacy in ourselves, feelings of incompleteness in ourselves. And uh, I can tell you I have no easy answer, unfortunately. Um, it's something I've thought of. And uh, I don't know, it might be something you want to discuss further with Lama Kathy, and she might have more wisdom for you, specific to your situation. Um, but but it's not um, it's not an easy answer. And Buddhism is Buddhism often goes after the middle way, right? Uh, not the extremes. And Buddhism does not necessarily say that the only way to deal with what you're talking about is to go quit your job tomorrow and don't look back. Not at all. So I hope that helps, but I'm not sure how it could. <laughs> um, I think uh, bringing mindfulness and intention to the question is is of great value. All right, one more. Yeah, thanks for your talk. And sure. It, it uh, generated a lot of thoughts. I'm trying to form this into a question. I guess, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of ways are, you know, vision of beauty. A lot, when I think about California, you know, mm. was growing up watching Beverly Hillbillies. It's such a good show. <laughs> you know, he tries to jalopy, and, you know, and he tries to, Jed's not going to change. He's going to wear the same old outfit, you know, year after year. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, so it's sort of, uh, somehow, uh, California, they don't have an accent. Uh, England, it's their language, and they're the one with the accent, you know. Mm. Somehow, California's created this image of, you know, this is the perfect life. Mm. This is the perfect life. And in this country, you know, I see, like, the reaction. I, I talk a lot of people who are the conservative people, and they think that cities are bad. Hollywood's evil. Like all all hippies, dope smoking hippies came from Hollywood or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like so somehow, and it's this uh, uh, somehow it's it goes from like it's this ostentatious opulence to uh, fascist purity. Mm. Like this is our religion, you know. Mm -hmm. You can go back to sixteen hundreds, the time mm -hmm. of uh, Louis the Fourteenth is ostentatious, you know. And then the reaction, the Puritans, mm. and they come mm -hmm. to Massachusetts and they just enforce this rigorous kind of. Mm -hmm. Like, this is how it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we live simply, and that's it. And I, I see a lot of, you know, problems, you know, coming up in the world. I mean, it's not going to be easy, because every, like, the in Amazon, they've got a new uh, president, and he's just going to dig up every, you know, he's going to get every, every resources they can get. And a lot of those people are going to be displaced. They've been, you know, left alone for years, but now it's and everywhere. And so it's going to be kind of like a, people will choose, choose, you know, and most people can't obtain the California, you know, beautiful life, you know. And so the, the reaction is to be some kind of, you know, uh, terrorist. I mean, a lot of ways in, um, uh, we always talk about, you know, we think that suicide bombers is all like Muslim. But, you know, you talk, look at uh, in Texas, you know, that guy, that's a suicide attempt. You know, he's going in there, he's shooting up and, yeah, I surrender, but you're going to execute me. Mm -hmm. Timothy McVeigh. It's just sort of like, uh, so I don't really know where the, you know, the, uh, uh, 
the question. I don't know what question I have. Really. Well, no, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you see a lot of the concepts that Karmapa talked about in all of that. When you specifically mentioned the idea that people are setting a standard and going after, you called it a fascist purity, right? They're trying to enforce a purity that this standard is better than everyone else and than other things. And it's basically trying to hold on to a spot in a hierarchy in a world that's constantly changing. So the Four Noble Truths teach us that our suffering comes from clinging and desire, which are two sides of the same coin. We are either desiring something that doesn't exist that we don't have and therefore suffering, or we're trying to cling to something that does or did exist, but it's constantly changing and it's pulling away from us. And so I think, I think that's exactly right. It, it's, and yet when you look at it in a historical context, what was California 200 years ago? It was a totally different thing. What was America 300 years ago? A totally different thing. Um, it didn't exist, as a matter of fact. Um, as a, as a political body, as a country of America, um, so so it's it's basically denying the constant change that we find ourselves in, and therefore trying to cling that's to something that that's changing. It's impossible to do for any extended period of time, both in our own lives, if we're talking about clinging to a person or a pet or a job or anything like that, it's impossible to do for long term. And people who uh, get very wound up in these political ideals and try to hold on to a specific notion are doing exactly the same thing. They're trying to hold on to something that is impermanent. They're trying to enforce something or trying to enforce something that doesn't exist. And um, they're losing their spot in a hierarchy. I won't keep everyone very long, but I've done a lot of contemplating over the last two and a half years specifically. Um, if you do the math, you'll figure that one out. Um, about feeling powerless and how we react to feeling powerless and what it's like to feel powerless day after day after day. Um, what it's like who, for those who are born into specific spots on social hierarchies uh, in which there is actual and real social inequality and have felt um, this powerlessness from the time they were aware of it. And uh, it's definitely something to bring to your practice, this powerlessness. Because if taken incorrectly, it causes a lot of clinging and a lot of desire, 
a lot of anger, a lot of hatred. And that's true no matter which side of, of politics you're on. Um, and it's, it's definitely something to, to work out and work on. So I hope that helps. Let's finish up. This is just sort of a side. I, I remember in this Mad Magazine, uh, it, was, it was in 1972, and it had this, uh, uh, it was sort of an illustration of political sides. It went from the liberal to conservative, and then it was six, there were six categories, from, from conservative to very conservative to liberal to, to very liberal, and you went from, you know, to the redneck to the, to the radical hippie, and it's just, it was all stereotypes. He just went, okay, conservative. He de- decorates at Christmas time. You know, they put mm-hmm. an excessive amount of, you know, Christmas lights and blah, 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 you know, different kinds of. It was hilarious, you know. Mm-hmm. Like one of the, you know, real, real conservative wears boxer shorts or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's kind of like, so we kind of fit into these sort of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Like, this is my identity. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. Well, and yeah. one of the things about stereotypes is that we we always see diversity in our own group, but we treat all other groups as a monolith, as, uh, as though they are homogeneous. So what I mean by this is I grew up in Christianity. I am and, and went to a Christian college and have a degree in Christian education. I know the differences, even on a theological basis, between a whole lot of Christian denominations, etc. So if someone says Christian, and they're not specific, because that was something I grew up with, I know, well, that's kind of meaningless unless you're talking about this particular group, or this particular group, or this particular group. But if it's not our group, we have the tendency to lump all Muslims in, as Karmapa said, we take a handful of terrorists and we see all Muslims through that lens because they're all alike. I know the millions of differences between all the Christians, between all the Americans, between all the Buddhists. I mean, there are Buddhists who are oppressing and literally committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslims in Burma right now. Someone could take that and look at all Buddhists as being very hateful people. But we know that that's not the case because that's our group. We're inside that group. We see all the differences between uh, Buddhists and things like that. So that's where stereotypes fall apart. It's, it's always as soon as you're looking outside your group that you tend to to uh, see it in terms of stereotypes. Yeah, I wish I could find this. I looked at my mom's attic, you know, like old mag, old mag magazines. <laughs> it's really a, it's a, it's a nice piece of like from 1972. It's just an <laughs> illustration, a cultural illustration. You know? Yeah. But, uh, anyway, let's, uh, Some things don't change that quickly, do they? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, there is great virtue in gathering together to hear words of wisdom. And it creates for us causes that will lead to positive results. But let's not hold on to that positivity for ourselves. Let's dedicate that positivity uh, to everyone. And let's hold in our minds, especially those held in the grip of fear, by their ignorance of the value of equality and diversity.
Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.